Good morning, everybody. How are we? It is such a privilege and an honor um, to be here this morning and sharing God's Word with you. And I thank um, the pastors for entrusting me with this precious privilege. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my Father, my God, I come before you humbly today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would wrap me in your love and your power. God, that you would give me the words that this message that you've given me would go forth and go into the hearts of every man, woman, and child that's in this place today. God, that you would be glorified and you would be lifted up and that you would be made known. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's topic is the third and final in a three-part series that we've been doing called Practicing the Principles of Prayer. I have the pleasure of talking about praying by myself or prayer by myself, alone time with Jesus. Who loves alone time with Jesus? It's an interesting challenge. I don't know about you, but I start off with great expectations. I'm like a rocket, ready to go. I'm fired, I'm primed. I hit the ignition and then I fizzle. (laughs) It's all over before it started. There was more time in prep than there was in actual praying. It can be weird. You're in a room, perhaps you're taking it literally and you're in a closet and you're praying all by yourself. I'm glad no one can see me. Aren't you glad that we're not told to go on the rooftops and do that? It's the quickest way I've ever discovered, it was the quickest way to discover that I'm actually really tired (laughs) and all of a sudden I can't do it anymore. I'm reminded of all those report cards I got from when I was at school that The teacher said, you have a concentration span of an ant. (laughs) I don't know what to say. How do I position myself? Do I kneel? Do I stand? Do I close my eyes? Do I keep them open? Do I put my hands like this? Do I lay on my face? How do I even position myself? Should I face a certain way? Who do I even addressing? Is it God? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it Jesus? I'm so confused. How are you supposed to pray without ceasing? I can barely last five minutes. Does God even hear me? He doesn't seem to answer my prayers. Maybe guilt and shame. How can I go before God today after the things that I've just done? I can't face my father. This is just my list. (laughs) You've each got your own list of reasons why that we come up with, that legitimizes in our own mind why we don't pray and have those aligned times with Jesus. You know, the disciples in today's story, in the, in the reading that we had, the disciples who walked with Jesus, they recognized something about him. They recognized that there was something that happened in his public life when he was out there doing those miracles and signs and wonders and just miraculous things, that there was a connection that these things happened after he'd been in solitude and privately praying with his father. And as they recognized this, they said to him on one of these occasions, and that's what we read in Luke in verse 1, it said, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. You know, if we want to know how to pray and spend time with God, Who better to ask than the master of prayer, 
Jesus Christ. Lord, teach us to pray. If you ever don't know what to pray, there's a good start in your personal prayer time and alone time with Jesus. This gives us so much hope because we can ask Jesus, the master of prayer, to teach us how to pray. You know, like a muscle in your body, they don't just become big and strong all on their own. They're exercised. We have to use them. And the same is true with prayer. We have to use it. We have to exercise it. And as we do it and we use it more and more, it goes from strength to strength. And our prayer life does change. The author Andrew Murray, in his book with Christ in the School of Prayer, he says this. It's on the screen. You can read it. Though in its beginnings, prayer is so simple that the feeblest child can pray, Yet it is at the same time the highest and holiest work to which man can rise. It is fellowship with the unseen and most holy one. It's the channel of all blessings, the secret of power and life, not only for ourselves but for others, for the church, for the world. It is to prayer that God has given the right to take hold of him and his strength. It is on prayer that the promise, promises wait for their fulfillment, the kingdom for its coming, the glory of God for its full revelation. Too many of us too often have the form of prayer but without the power. The ineffectual prayer. The pointless. What we need is true prayer that takes hold of God's strength and achieves much. We have to know that God hears our prayers. God is interested in our prayers. God is interested in you. Why would Jesus teach us to pray? Because he knows the great strength and power of it. He experienced that personally as he walked his years on this earth. He knows how important it is to the Father that he spends time with you. See, prayer is communication with God. There's many religions out there that actually say we need to pray but the prayer I'm talking about today is communication with our God, the Creator, our Father. This can include petition, entreaty, which is earnest and humble request, supplication, thanksgiving, praise, hymns and lament. But prayer is like a single side of a coin. There's a flip side to that coin, and that's worship. And worship is the essence of all prayer. You can't pray without worshipping. Prayer or worship are in and of themselves powerless. But what makes the difference is the object of our prayer. It's who we're praying to. That's the world of difference. From goes from being this clanging symbol to something that actually changes things in people's lives. At the heart of prayer is this. God's love for us, his love for mankind and his desire for us to worship him and be intimate in our relationship with him. This is God's heart. It's always been, always will be. Jesus, when he was talking to the Samaritan woman, when she asked him, where should we worship? Should we worship on this mountain where they were or should we worship in Jerusalem in the, in the, in the temple? And Jesus answered, 
as we can see in John chapter 4, starting in verse 21, he says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, this is being the Samaritans, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Verse 23 is very telling. It says, But the hour is coming, and it's now here. It's here. It's now. It's not coming. It's not future. It's now. When true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. I don't know if you've seen that, but God is seeking people to worship Him. God is seeking you out to pray, to worship, to communicate with Him, to be in relationship. Who are these worshippers, these true worshippers that He's seeking? It's those that worship in spirit and truth. See, we're, we're a carnal being, we're a carnal man. And we cannot bring God the worship that He seeks in and of ourselves. You can be the best person in this world, in your mind never do anything wrong, but the reality is the best you can do is not good enough. True worshippers are those that realize that Jesus is the truth of God. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. To worship in truth is to worship God through Jesus. To worship in spirit is to worship in the spirit of God, the spirit of God within us. That's the Holy Spirit. Why is this important? Let's look at Luke eleven twenty four. It's important because God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. See, as God is a spirit, what this means is he's not bound by space or time. He is always and everywhere the same. So his worship can no longer be confined to a place or a form, but it is spiritual as he himself is spiritual. I'm so glad that God doesn't reside in the temple anymore in Jerusalem. How would we go there today to worship our God? But because he is spirit, we can worship and pray anywhere, anytime, place. I'm very grateful for this particularly now that we have car phones or we can connect our car to our radio because it doesn't look like you're talking to yourself as you're driving down the road. People just think you're on the phone. But you can have some incredible times with God. I know I have some amazing times with God driving along. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, we're told that, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. We don't have to do a life's journey to go and find God. We just have to look in. God's Spirit that's within us. Do you know this Spirit comprehends the thoughts of God? In 1 Corinthians, it goes on and says in, in chapter 2, verse 11, For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. 
That's that spirit that's within us can comprehend the thoughts of God, which means if we can talk to the Holy Spirit who's in us, we can have access to the thoughts of God. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. In John 16, Jesus, where he's actually paving the way for the Holy Spirit or the Comforter to come, says this, talking about the Holy Spirit. He goes, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. The Holy Spirit speaking to us is speaking directly from God and Jesus. It's such a powerful thought. See, without understanding this, it's no wonder that we struggle in our own personal prayer lives. Because it's not about doing, it's about being. We have prayers that are dry, pointless, ineffective and powerless. So I think it's most important, the most important point is to understand the Father's heart and see how much he actually loves you and loves me today. You know, God gave his only begotten son. We all know that. But he gave his son. Yes, Jesus came and he died a horrible death. And he did die. But thank goodness he rose again. And we have victory and we have life. And we have renewal. And we're new creatures because of it. That as we accept that Jesus is the son of God, that we can be forgiven of our sins and be reconciled with the Father. But we often forget who authorized him to come, who sent him, who gave him, who signed off on it. The Father did. I think at times we underrate the love of the Father for us. We often see him as judge, not as a loving God, but as a judge waiting to give his verdict and throw down whatever those things are. Do you know that you and I will never be loved more by God than you are right now? God can't love you any more than he already does because he loves you with everything. He loves me with everything. Everything Jesus did, everything the Holy Spirit does is of the Father. Let's take the Bible, for example. You know, contained in this book is a whole bunch of stories. It starts with the Old Testament and the Old Testament really is just a, is a signpost pointing towards the Messiah, pointing towards Jesus coming. And every story and every illustration that's in there, every poem, every love letter, every, every prophetic word, every law was a pointing and a direction of Jesus Christ. And then we get the New Testament and this is the reality of Jesus Christ coming and him becoming the saviour of the world and sacrificing his life and living a life and give us an example of what it is to be obedient to the Father. Making way for the Holy Spirit to come, our comforter, so that we can actually have the Spirit within us, His Spirit. And finishing with the future hope that we have in His return, that one day we can be on the same earth when the Father God comes and lives with us. Do you realise that every story Every word, every Bible character, every parable, every lesson, every tilde that is in this book has been written by God for you and to you. 
this isn't just written to create some organization called a church. This is actually a personal love letter for each and every one of us from the Father. You are known by Him. God loves you. And sadly, as I was preparing, well, it's not sadly, this is actually a really good thing. But as I was preparing, there's some of us that probably don't know how much the Father loves us and we don't perhaps spend as much time with Him as we, we should. And I, and I really do believe that God gave me this message for you today. He misses you. He misses your presence. He misses your time. He misses your heart. And he just wants to be with you. He just wants to be in relationship with you. Before I go to the next point, I think it's really important that we understand some of these points. And I just want to really underline them for you today. That Jesus is wanting and willing to teach us to pray. We just have to ask him. You and I will never be more loved than we are right now by the Father. He can't love us anymore. He gave everything. God really does love you and his desire is to have intimacy with you. Is to have a closeness and a deepness. That you will know he is with you at every moment of every day. Doesn't matter what you're going through, where you are. That he's there. You see, God is looking for relational Interactions, not transactional interactions. We transact with God. If you're married here today, if you lived a life in a relationship with your wife or your husband, if you're a woman, um, just to clarify, um, and your relationship was all based on transactions, then you're going to have a pretty tough, pretty tough job. I've got a at home in my fridge. There's a blackboard and on that is quite a number of lists of things of tasks that I've got to get done around the house. Things that need to be done. Things that are broken. And if I come home and all I did was make sure that that list was cleared and those boxes were ticked and I never even did anything other than that, I don't think I'd last too long. But you know, we do this with God. We did our daily reading plan today, tick. We practiced the little prayers each day, tick. We pray for our food throughout the day, tick. Possibly even go to church, you're here today, big tick. We tell someone we're a Christian, tick. Actually, that's probably two ticks because that's almost witnessing. We do something for someone else, tick. We give money to to the church, tick. We help out at church, tick. Man, with all these ticks, I am truly spiritual. I really got my Christian life together and I'm going places. You know, in Psalms 40, the psalmist tells us that God takes no delight in sacrifices or offerings. He doesn't require burnt offerings and sin offerings. He requires relationship. God doesn't require transactions. He requires relationship. Let's get personal with him. Let's get deep. Let's get real. This is true prayer. This is true worship. By ourselves that God is seeking that God is looking for you know God and Jesus gave us things to help him um, not treat him like an object and he gave us this model prayer that we've talked about today but this too can be misused 
because we can learn it and learn it well, that it just becomes recited and it's just words on a page. And we become familiar with it and we miss the beauty that is within it. I want to dig through another portion of this prayer that's captured in Matthew and unpack that a little bit today uh, in terms of what God wants us to learn about Him and us having a relationship together. In Matthew 6, 9, 13, it's called the Lord's Prayer, but in reality it really should be the disciples' prayer because Jesus gave us this model of prayer for us, uh, not for Him to pray, but for us to pray. And there's two reasons why I say that. First of all is that He doesn't have a debt. He doesn't owe anybody anything. And He's not ever led into temptation anymore. He's beyond that. And He never, never did need to be delivered from evil because he's already got that victory. But he tells us this. He says, the, it says, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. In both Luke and Matthew's versions Jesus is giving us a model it's a pattern of prayer as I said before we often pray in repetition and it can sound wonderful you get a room like this everybody's saying it and it's just like it's like a, a nice song it's beautiful but you know if it's not understood it's actually nothing but words a bit like a clanging cymbal I'd encourage each and every one of you today, I'm just going to touch the surface with what I'm about to do, but I'd encourage each and every one of you to go home and actually study this for yourself. Make it a personal goal to actually understand every line, every word that God is actually speaking through this. It will change your life. In Luke 11.1, 1, Jesus started in, his ver in Luke's version saying, when you pray, this is not a suggestion, it's not nor, uh, nor if or should, but when you pray, this tells us that prayer shouldn't be something we do when we think about it or just because I haven't done it for a while, but it's a given that you're going to. Jesus and John the Baptist prayed. Why would we think for a minute if they had to pray and they prayed, why we wouldn't need to? <laughs> if prayer was so vital to these men, it is so much more vital for us. The greatest justification or reason for why Christians should pray, particularly personal time alone with God, is just Jesus himself. There's at least 21 occasions where he spent alone time talking to his Father. What Jesus gives us here is a model. It's a, it's a model prayer not just to be mindlessly recited, but to be understood and grasped for the deep intrinsic meaning that it is. Let's unpack this model of prayer. Starting at verse 9, going through the, the Matthew verse, starts off, Our Father in heaven. The first two sentences, the first two words, I love it, Our Father. Right here, right off the mark, Jesus is sharing His Father with us. That we can call Him Our Father. This is the gospel in two words. Because the heart of God was so that we could be reconciled with Him. And we couldn't be reconciled without what Jesus did and the price he paid, and the sacrifice he made, and the victory he got. 
the term father is Abba Father. This was never before had been never before had it been used as a reference to God by man. To call God your father, your Abba Father, was just unheard of. See, Abba was an Aramaic word, which is to express intimacy, security, and tenderness in a family relationship. The closest we have in English is probably daddy, and that sounds too cute sometimes. So probably dearest father. It was a very intimate term when we refer to God as our father, Abba father. This also firmly sets the father-child relationship in place that we have as we have been made sons adopted into his family. In Romans 8.14 it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you have received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. That is intimacy right there. In verse 9, it continues on and he says, Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. To hallow something is to set it apart as holy. It's to consider it holy, it's to treat it holy. It's to be reverenced. His name is to be reverenced. It's to understand how important that term is, our Father. Giving God this unique reverence that his character and nature as Father demands. It also says that he is far above me. It says I depend on him, I need him, and he wants to be depended upon. In verse 10, he goes, your kingdom come. Now God is our dearest father, but he's also a king who has a kingdom. And one day this father's kingdom will be on this earth. And that's an exciting time for us as believers. It reminds us also that Jesus is coming back prior to that. And that's also an exciting thing for us. But it also leads into the second half of verse 10, Because as all people like us who have become Christians, we become obedient to his will. Because those who are in God's kingdom strive to do the will of the Father. And if we go to verse 10 now, it says, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, God's will is done. No ifs, buts or maybes. There's no debate. There's no drawing straws. It just happens. When we go to God... We're asking him to help us accomplish his will on earth. It's not about convincing God of this great idea you've got. It's not about bringing our will and saying, God, this is a really good idea. But it's about submitting to his ideas and his desires and his discussion. It reminds us that we should live an obedient life in submission to him with complete trust and faith that the Father knows best. God is not going to ask us to do something that is beyond us or is harmful for us. Even though our will wants to go its own way, being in the kingdom means that my will is redirected by God's will. I surrender my will. I surrender my desires and I ask that God will give me his desires. Verse 11 says, give us this day our daily bread. The word and the term daily bread here 
actually means sufficiency for today. This in itself tells us that we should be praying daily because this is not about praying for tomorrow's bread or next week's bread or the bread that I want when, I, when I'm living in three years from now, but it's talking about today and that this, this speaks of God's sufficiency and our dependency on his sufficiency, that God will keep us every day. This is an opportunity to bring God our daily temporal needs as well. This is where it says that we can actually ask him for his opinion or his mind on a matter. You know, when we're praying, we're praying to a father, but we're also praying to a king. And when we look at him as a king who has the whole kingdom at his disposal, there's nothing too big for a king. So it doesn't matter well how big your need is, we can bring it to God and he's able. But as we also pray, for a, pray to a father, our father, we can bring the most smallest thing to his attention. Not that he didn't know, but he loves to hear it from your lips. Verse 12 says, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The debt being spoke of here is obviously our sin. As bread is the first need for the body, forgiveness is for the soul. We are children, but we're sinners too. And our right of access to the Father's presence, we owe because of the precious blood that Jesus Christ shed and the forgiveness he has won for us. We're not, given, we're not forgiven because we forgive others, and this is a really important point. We forgive others because we are forgiven. We don't seek, we can't earn God's forgiveness, but because we have it, we should forgive. And that includes yourself. The final verse, verse 13, and says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is not implying that God leads us into temptation, because we know that He can't. In James, it says, Let no one say that He is tempted, that let no one say when He is tempted that I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Nor is this saying, though, that if I pray, God will miraculously lead me away from temptation as I so often have. <laughs> the point here is to be aware of our weakness. The very best of us, at our very best, are vulnerable and stumble easily. Apart from the grace and strength of God. And you know, we are never more vulnerable as when we think we're past certain temptations. I love that it finishes on this note because it reminds us of how feeble and weak and dependent on the mighty God we are. God is so interested in you and me that he longs to build a relationship with you and you have a relationship with him. For you to get to know him in a personal, intimate, deep way. We're told to look to God and his kingdom above all. In Matthew 6, it says, Seek the kingdom of God, and above all else, live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough already. He calls us to pray or worship and bring everything to him. In Philippians 4, 5 through 7, it says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, 
by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I forgot to ask you a question at the beginning of this service. (laughs) I was too focused on praying. I want to ask you this question. Don't answer it out loud. I want you to think about it. What would you miss the most if you weren't a Christian anymore? When I was 19, 20, I remember one day I was just pondering in life and a strange question came through my mind. Not that question, but another one. What would I do if I got kicked out of church? <laughs> You're probably thinking, what were you doing as a 19-year-old to even think about getting kicked out of a church? I wasn't actually doing anything. It was just an idle moment and I was just pondering and, and that thought came across my mind. It was a strange thought, but it was, the, it was really the right question and I didn't even understand the power of that question at the time. But it was right for where I was at. I'd been a Christian for some nine years at that stage. And after pondering that question, you know what? I I did come up with some answers and I come up with things like, well, what would I do on Sundays? Who would I hang out with? Who would be my friends? What church would I go to? Would I even go to another church? Don't get me wrong, I love God. And I'd accepted Jesus as my Lord and Saviour. And I would profess proudly that I had a personal relationship with him. However, for me, at that time, church was my God. I feared people. I feared men. And I pleased them more than I cared about God. I was reliant on God for when I had needs. I'd certainly pray. But if I had no need, well, then there was no need for God. And I'd go my merry way pretty independent. My relationship with God was superficial and shallow at best. But you know, in around 2006, some 15, 16 years later, when I was actually having a time with God, a really intimate time with God, he asked me that question, another question, the question I asked you, what would you miss the most if you weren't a Christian anymore? And my immediate answer My immediate response was this overwhelming sorrow and grief. And it was like my heart had been ripped out. And I said, God, you is what I'd miss. The whole thought of being absent from God was just too much for me to bear. I hadn't realised at that time that the question I got asked when I was 19 was a very similar question. Worded different, but it was the same heart. And it was actually God that asked me that question. But he began to show me how he's taken me on a journey and how far I'd come. And it's not because of me, but because of him. God then began to show me how he's changed me. Because I started having a relationship with him. It wasn't transactional anymore. It was deep, it was personal, it was intimate. I'd become dependent on God. I'd become relational with God. 
not transactional. See, a dependent Christian on God is one that is walking in right relationship with him. A relationship that is intimate with very little separating you from him. I used to believe that this type of intimacy was just for, you know, special people, maybe pastors or... But I'm no pastor and I've learned that this is for each and every single one of us that calls themselves a Christian. You don't need a title. You just need to know that you're a child of God and that he loves you so much that he desires you. You know, as I close this morning, I just want us to be reminded that Jesus is wanting and willing to teach us to pray. We just have to ask him. God is looking for relational interactions, not transactional. He's not interested in what you can do for him. He's interested in who you are. God really does love you and desires to have intimacy with you. Jesus has given us a model prayer to show us clearly who he is to us. He's our father. He's our dearest father. And who we are to him, we are his children, his sons and his daughters, loved by God. You and I will never be loved more by God than we are right now. Today we need to examine our life particularly our prayer life, our alone time with God. It's not just another box to tick. It's a special, special place where we can have intimacy. We can go deeper with God. We can go deeper in our relationship with the Lord through prayer. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, dearest Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you that Jesus, that you will teach us to pray if we ask. That you've given us this model prayer. That as we've unpacked it just on the surface, we see so much that's in there on how much our Father loves us. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your love. I thank you for the intimacy. God, I pray that we would be ruined for the ordinary that we would never be the same as we come to know you more in a deeper and personal way. In Jesus' name, amen.